You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be together again today. It's good to worship God together, isn't it? Um, I hadn't planned to say this, but just as we sung that final song, it, that final song reminded me of my dad um, when uh, my mum first became ill with cancer when I was about 11. And I remember going downstairs and uh, in the morning seeing my dad worshipping God to that song early in the morning. And I just want to encourage you as dads here, let your children see you worship. Whatever you're going through, let your children see you worship. I think the same is for mums as well, but dads especially. I I have vivid memories of my dad, even as a five, six-year-old, when I was five or six, seeing my dad worship him in church. Um, And that really has impacted me. So I want to encourage you men here, model that to your children. Press into worship and uh, don't worry about looking stupid. Worship God and it really will impact your kids. Okay, so that was just something I hadn't planned to say, but I thought it was important to say it. So James chapter 1 this morning, we're starting a new series. Uh, If you haven't uh, got a Bible with you, the verses we're going to read together will come up on the screens around the room. And uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, then James uh, is a letter written by a guy called James, unsurprisingly. And we're going to find it at the end of our Bibles in the, in the, uh, the last part of the New Testament. So if you find Hebrews, just flick on a little bit further and you'll find it. We're going to read uh, some verses together and work through them. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be in this book. So this is uh, James chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let's just pause there for a moment. This could be a sermon in and of itself, okay? James was the half-brother of Jesus. That, mean, that means that either uh, Mary and Joseph had other uh, kids after Jesus, or maybe Joseph had kids from a previous marriage, and then therefore Jesus had half-brothers in that, in that way, or step-brothers. Um, James, during Jesus' ministry on earth, did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. James did not believe it, and nor did Jesus' other brothers and sisters. They did not believe him to be who he was claiming to be. They didn't believe he was the Son of God. Now, if your brother or sister claims to be God, you're probably not going to believe them. You're going to think they're pretty crazy. And in fact, as we read through the Gospels, we see that at one point, his brothers and sisters tried to seize him to kind of lock him away a bit because they thought he had lost the plot completely. And yet James here, in this letter, just writing some years after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, is calling Jesus Christ Lord. Now you, as a Hebrew man, you need to understand, it would not be right for any uh, Hebrew man to call another man Lord in that way. Not Lord with a capital L, okay? This is, this is referring to Jesus as Yahweh, Jesus as the Master, Jesus as the one who created everything. This is James, Jesus' brother, referring to Jesus as the Lord. There's a sermon there in and of itself because James, his life was completely turned around when he realized that Jesus was who he said he was. Maybe he saw it just as Jesus was being tortured. Maybe he saw Jesus being tortured and yet forgiving those that were doing it to him. Or as he was on the cross, him thinking about others, putting others' needs even before his own, saying, look after my mum. And he was, he was selfless even at the point of death. Or maybe it was the fact that 40-odd hours after he was dead and 
certified dead, not with testing his pulse, but with a spear into his side just to make sure they'd done the job properly. Just 40 hours later, he was walking out of his tomb that was sealed and guarded by some beefy Roman soldiers. I think some of these things along the way, James, something's clicked there, and James has realized who his brother really is. And so he says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just that he realized that Jesus was the Savior. He was now going to lay his life down for Jesus. He was going to be a servant of Jesus. He was going to put aside his own agenda. He was going to put aside his own plans in life and serve Jesus Christ. Serve Jesus Christ's reputation and fame and renown. And we know from uh, church history that James was even willing to lay it all down for Jesus. That some 30 years later, he was killed by the uh, Jewish authorities. They threw him off the top of the temple in Jerusalem. And he didn't actually die at that point. He, he survived the fall. And as he's then on the ground, he gets clubbed to death because of his faith in Jesus. And all the while, whilst they're clubbing him, he's praying for those that are doing it to him. That's what the, uh, the, the church history and church tradition uh, reports. That, that is how James died. So this was a remarkable man of faith. He had a living faith. And that's something we're going to be looking at throughout this series, that our faith isn't something we just profess. That is something that's theory, but it's actually a living faith, a faith that makes a difference in our lives, a faith that outworks itself in particular ways in our life. And uh, we're going to see, as we go through this book together, that James uh, is a man who demonstrates it himself and wants to call others to as well. James was, um, after Jesus' ascension, he was one of the key leaders in the church in Jerusalem. He's mentioned elsewhere in Acts and elsewhere in the Bible. He was one of the pillars of the church there. And he died, we believe, in about 62 AD. So for about 29 years, he was a leader of a church in Jerusalem that was many thousand in uh, number, This was a church that was serving the poor. It was a church where people opened their homes up to each other. It was an amazing church. And this letter, scholars believe, was written around about AD 49, certainly no later than AD 49. So it could have been a number of years earlier than that. Now, this is important because many people would want to um, undermine what the Bible says by saying, well, it was written, uh, you don't understand, it was written hundreds of years after uh, Jesus was around. And so the facts have changed. Chinese whispers has happened, and suddenly Jesus has become this figure that people worship where it wasn't really the case. No, that is rubbish, because this was a book, this was a letter that was written only a matter of a few years after Jesus walked on earth. And, it's, and this is a fact, this is true, and so it's important that what we're reading here is the original uh, document, and people knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. They could have contested it. They could have said, no, that's rubbish. And yet we know the church in Jerusalem was many thousands in number. There wasn't time for Chinese whispers to evolve the message of Jesus. So let's, that's just a little bit of an aside. Let's continue to read together. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Are you like James, that when you write an email to someone, you cut to the chase? You don't dress it up with, hi, I hope this finds you well, I hope your family are doing well, and then you kind of butter people up, and then you, come, you cut to the chase. If you're like that, then, then you're not going to like James so much. He goes straight in, greetings, right, let's get down to business. This is a bit like Proverbs, okay? If you're familiar with the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, James is a bit like that. He kind of, his themes vary from line to line almost, and it's quite hard to follow in a kind of set. It's not like a section on this and then another section on this. He, he cuts to the chase and he flows a little bit like the Proverbs, and there's bits of wisdom for us. This is series we're calling Wisdom for You because it's, this book is packed full of wisdom. So here we have it, James uh, writing to the church, and he's saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This message this morning is called Troubled Times. Count it all joy when you meet troubles of various kinds. Now, already, I can start to see some of you looking a bit uncomfortable because you probably come this morning because you want to escape trouble. You probably come this morning because you want to know the way out of trouble and you might be looking into Christianity even because you want to somehow get away from some of the things that are blighting your life. And yet James here, one of the key leaders in the early church, the brother of Jesus, is saying, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's not necessarily the message we want to hear, because many of us have heard a message over the years which goes a little bit like this. If you place your faith in Jesus, then he will sort out all the rubbish in your life, and you'll have a life that is is full of happiness. It might not be that explicit, but it might be implicit. It might be that someone said to you, Jesus wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Who's heard that phrase before? I bet a number have. That sometimes we come into this and we think, hang on a minute, I thought God is my shepherd. We've been singing about that this morning. So therefore, he's never going to let me go through any difficulties. As we're going to see this morning, he will allow us to go through difficulties. Some of us here have heard this phrase, God wants you to live your best life now. I don't see that in the Bible, and I don't think that James would have appreciated it as he was about to be pushed off the top of the temple. James, God, if you just have enough faith, God will let you live your best life now. I don't think he really would have appreciated that very much as they were shoving him off the temple and clubbing his head in. This wasn't the message of the Bible. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers salvation from sin and adoption by our Father who's in heaven, not a platform for a trouble-free life, or not a platform for earthly prosperity. Don't hear what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying that God doesn't help in trouble, and nor am I saying that it's wrong to have earthly possessions and finance. But that's not the gospel. And some here just need to have that kind of broken, that lie that, If only you have enough faith and you can claim prosperity and trouble-free living, that's a lie. It's not in the Bible. I I would challenge you to come and show me where it is that it says that. Jesus has come so that we would know salvation from sin, that we'd know adoption by our Heavenly Father, that we could be His sons and daughters, not a trouble-free life. So, Here we have James, one of the key leaders in the church, assuming that believers in Jesus will have trials. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We will face trials of various kinds. Jesus said it to his disciples, in this world you will have troubles, 
but take heart, I have overcome the world. Peter, another of Jesus' friends, one of his disciples, he says this in his letter in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So why do Peter, James, and Jesus himself go to the trouble of warning us of these trials? Well, it's as simple as this. If we know a fight is coming, then we will posture ourselves appropriately. If we don't know a fight is coming, if we, don't, if we believe that Jesus is offering us a life of uh, ease and comfort and of abundance of possessions and never, ever any trials, then we will be flawed when the day of trial comes. We'll be flawed. When my brother and I were teenagers, we used to fight and wrestle a lot. If you're uh, a parent of boys here, don't worry, it will pass. I have uh, probably the last fight I had with my brother was when we were about 17. And yet we would fight and wrestle with each other. And about 10 minutes later, we'd be best mates again. That's kind of what boys do, uh, unfortunately, just to kind of get a bit of energy out. I remember one time being whacked over the head with a PlayStation controller by my brother. And then five minutes later, we were sitting next to each other on the sofa playing PlayStation together. That's kind of what uh, teenage boys often do. My brother, when he knew that I was looking for a fight... Okay, I'd, I'd, he was an older brother, that's what younger brothers do. I would, would wind him up deliberately. I knew the, the, the buttons to press to kind of get him to have a fight with me. And when he knew that uh, I was doing that, he would go and lay on the sofa and put his uh, feet in the air because he knew that when I attacked then, he had, a, he had a, a posture thereby he could strike me with his foot and I'd be down on the floor. He could get me in a headlock and he could start rubbing my head with his fist. That's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of posture he took. So when we know a fight is coming, when we know that we're going to face trials, we will posture ourselves accordingly. Trials are not a strange occurrence. Trials happen, whether it be job insecurity or unemployment, whether it be relationship strain or breakdown, whether it be harassment or abuse or financial insecurity or poverty, whether it be illness, whether it be bereavement, whether it be betrayal, whether it be loneliness, whether it be stress or children who are challenging, these all come under the banner, unsurprisingly, of various trials. Okay, I think James is deliberate here using this phrase, trials of various kinds, because we tend to think we're the exception a lot of the time, don't we? We look at our lives and we think, well, this doesn't really apply to me because the circumstances that I'm going through are quite special. We often excuse ourselves, well, and, and sometimes the way we react to things as well, well, if only they knew what I was really going through, because I'm going through something that's quite unique right now. But actually, James here is saying these are trials of various kinds. This message is for you. If you're going through a trial, that comes under the banner of trials of various kinds, and therefore this message is for you this morning. James's plea is that whatever our situation is that we do not let trials finish us as Christians. God wants us not just to scrape through the trials, but to actually grow through them. So how can we become the sort of Christians who persevere, who stand firm in faith throughout hard times, and even grow through it? How can we, as James has written in this letter, how can we consider it joy when we face trials of various kinds? How is that even possible? Well, we're going to look at five things this morning as we work through this text together. The first thing is this, we need to have a change in our thinking. We need to consider it joy when we face trials of various kinds. Is this guy serious? 
Is he for real? Is he saying that we're supposed to pretend that a trial is fun in some way? Are we supposed to put on a happy face and kind of block out reality and pretend that all is fun? No, he's not telling us to change how we feel, but how we think, to adopt a view of what is going on. So we can adopt a view that God is somehow abandoning us, although we've even sung this morning that he will always be with us, that his rod and staff will be guiding us. We see that uh, in Hebrews that God has promised to never leave nor forsake us. So we could take a view that God is abandoning us, or we could take a view that he's punishing us in some way for some things we've done wrong. Or friends, if we know Jesus here, we know that Jesus has absorbed all the punishment on the cross for your sin and my sin. So that cannot be the case. We can consider it joy because through it, God is allowing something to happen that it might be for our growth and change in our lives. This is the point that James is making. It's really straightforward that somehow through the trials that we endure, God wants to make us into a more mature and well-rounded Christian that better reflects Christ to the world around. That's, That's the change of thinking that God is wanting us to have here. That through the trial, God might be doing something profound within us. God's number one aim is to make us more like Jesus. It's not to make our lives more comfortable. It's to make us more like Jesus. And we can't get to that place without going through some trials. So we have a choice to consider. What is happening here? What is God doing in the background? What might he be showing me? Maybe he's trying to show me where my foundations are truly laid. You know, when a storm comes and rips through villages, if you can picture uh, in third world nations, when a storm happens and takes down whole houses and only the foundations remain, or sometimes they don't even remain at all, you can, you can tell how well or how uh, poorly those houses have been built. And sometimes through the trial, God is blowing away loads of other things so that you can get down to see where your foundations are truly laying. We need a change in our thinking. Far from trials being a sign that God has abandoned us, they are a part of his plan to make us more mature. So we change our thinking by getting a perspective of who God is. We need to be in the word of God and we see that God is our father, that he's not cruel or malicious, that he loves us, he loves you. So trials that you're going through are not a sign that he doesn't love you or that he's disillusioned with you. Now, when you're in the Word of God and you get a perspective of who God is, you see that He's a Father. He's a Father with all authority, so He's not unable to alter your situation. He's a God who's able to do all things, so we get a perspective of who He is. We see in chapter 5, we're going to read a bit into James chapter 5 in a minute, we see that He's gracious and compassionate. He's full of grace for you, undeserved favor for you. He's compassionate towards you. It genuinely... Um, causes him to grieve when you're going through difficulties. He, he is sovereign. He's able to work all things together for the good of those who love him. So when we, read, when we get into the Word, we see these truths. We get perspective of who he is. But we also get a perspective of his view of the world. Because we kind of go about um, the world with kind of like a broken sat-nav, really. My sat-nav is about eight or nine years old now, and it doesn't update anymore. So I was on a journey with my children yesterday, and 
I was trying to help them to kind of stay awake. So I was like, you watch the sat-nav. Tell me where we need to go. Uh, we're going left or right. You can teach me. But, you know, our sat-nav was going crazy. And I knew it was saying to me to go the wrong way. So I was ignoring it, which was confusing the children. But that's kind of how we go about life. We've got, got this broken sat-nav. We don't see everything God sees. And he's looking down and he sees everything. He sees the eagle-eyed view, the HD you know, ultra high definition view. And he also sees the street view, the Google street view. He sees everything and he knows things that we don't know. He has perspective that we don't have. So we need to understand that. We look at stories like Joseph. When Joseph goes through loads and loads of trials, he gets abandoned by his siblings. They sell him into slavery. He ends up getting falsely accused of wrongdoing. He gets thrown into prison. And throughout all of that, he stays faithful to God. He clings to God. And at the end of his uh, trial that he's gone through, he's able to say to his brothers, what, what you meant for evil, God meant for my good. He's able to see that God, there's a perspective there that throughout it all, God is working some things in his life. Our culture is, I want everything now. We want, we want instant um, entertainment. We want instant food. I, I sit in a restaurant sometimes, not a fast food restaurant at times, and I think, this has been a long time, this meal. I ordered it like 10 minutes ago. It should be on my plate right now. Is anyone else like that? <laughs> We're an instant kind of, we want instant gratification. We want things to be right, right now. And yet we've come far away from the biblical worldview where a farmer would sow a seed and not see anything for a long time. And then, then after some time, the first fruits would appear. We've, we've got to kind of see God's perspective. He's outside of time to him, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. We need to see God's perspective, what he's doing. I want to read to you this great quote from A.W. Tozer. It's quite a long one. Listen up to this. The unplanted field is smug, contented, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of being broken up. Such a field, as it lies year after year, becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay. Safe and undisturbed, it sprawls lazily in the sunshine, the picture of sleepy contentment. But it is paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know because it is afraid of the plough. In direct opposite to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protecting fence has opened to admit the plough, and the plough, as a plough always comes, comes practically, cruelly, and businesslike, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery. The field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken, but its reward comes hard upon its labours. The seed shoots up into the daylight, its miracle of life glorious, exploring the new world above it. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation. New things are born to grow, mature, and consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. Do you understand that picture? It's the field that has had to go through the cultivation, the field that has had to undergo the kind of quite harsh plowing. It's that field that produces the fruit. Has any of us ever grown when life has been really easy? 
Has any of us ever made a shortcut in that respect? Has our faith ever really grown overnight? Have we matured when times are easy? It's often in the hard times that God wants to mature us. It's often in the hard times that he wants to make us complete and mature and lacking nothing. This is where we see it's a living faith. It's not a theory, okay? It's not a set of things that we recite on a creed, although there's value in that. This is not something that we just say, yeah, in in theory, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died for my sins and so on. No, this is a living faith. This is a living faith that God wants us to have. Now, all of this is not to say that God doesn't come to our, our aid in trials, because he does. And he does heal today. And in fact, I want to pray for people today to experience healing, to know physical healing, healing of mental health issues. I want to pray with you, and no, no doubt there'll be others in our prayer team who want to pray for you for that later. God does come to our aid. He does intervene in situations. However, we must also see that sometimes he doesn't do that, and in it he wants to teach us something and show us something and cause us to lean hard on him and cause us to throw ourselves upon him in ways that we may have not done before. We get this balance between the now and the not yet. God heals today. He absolutely heals today. A number of us would be able to raise our hand now and say, I have known God's healing physically, mentally, whatever it might be. I've known miraculous touches. And yet, there's also a not yet. We haven't fully received the kingdom of heaven on earth fully. There's still things we go through that are difficult, which God will allow for our maturity and growth. So we need to change our thinking. It's, a, it's not a case of God punishing us. It's not a case of God abandoning us. It's a case of God growing us. Don't panic. The rest of my points are not going to be as long as that one. Okay. Secondly, we need to resist comparison. In suffering and trials, we can often look into the lane next to us and we think, well, they've got it pretty good. Anyone else relate to that? You might be going through ill health. You might look at someone else and think, man, I wish I was as in good a shape as they are. Or we might be going through difficulty in our marriage and looking at someone else and thinking, man, I wish my marriage was like that. I wish my husband or wife was like that. Or uh, you know, We can go through trials. Oh, my house is a mess. Uh, it's falling apart. We, we haven't got the money to, to fix it. And you look at someone else's place and you think, man, they've got a beautiful house. They never seem to be uh, you know, having to do work on their house to kind of keep it looking all right. Whatever it might be, those are kind of um, just a few examples. But we look so often to other people and we compare ourselves, particularly in suffering. The temptation is great in suffering. And you know, envy will kill you. It's a poison. It really is. It will kill your joy in God. It will kill your relationship with God. If you allow envy to take hold of your heart, don't look into the lane next to you with envy. A way of assessing whether this is something that you've fallen to is, can you thank God for the blessings that other people are experiencing? Can you thank God for that? Can you say, thank you, God, that they are seemingly experiencing a blessing here? But also, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled in this um, Instagram age that someone's life is perfect, because it's not. We, we present our highlights real to the world, and it's not a realistic picture. So resist comparison. Thirdly, be patient. Resist grumbling. Resist the temptation to become bitter towards God. James chapter 5. We're gonna, these are going to come up on the screen as well. Be patient, therefore, brothers. This is verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. That's a key phrase. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Do not grumble. Establish your heart. That's a key phrase for us. Where is your heart established? Is it established in the goodness of God? Are you someone who is thankful for his goodness to you? Because he doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us anything, and yet he's given us his very best. He doesn't owe you or I a single thing. That's the way to resist grumbling when you're going through a trial, is to know that God does not owe us a single thing. Let's establish our hearts in that truth. Let's establish our hearts in the grace and mercy of God that he's lavished upon us. Let's not think, well, you know, I deserve better here. Establish your heart in the grace and mercy of God. Now, this doesn't mean don't share the load with trusted people. It doesn't mean don't share what you're struggling with with others. But don't grumble as if you deserve better, because we don't. We don't deserve better. Actually, what we do deserve is separation from God. And praise him, he has made a way for us not to know that. Fourthly, we wait for Jesus' return. He's coming back. I wonder how many of us dream about that day. I wonder how many of us dream about heaven. It's often in trials that we are we're led to dream about heaven, that we're led to dream about what it's going to be like with him. Do we eagerly long for the coming of Christ? Do we want to see his kingdom established, or do we think that might be a bit of an interruption to what we want to do here? Do we think it might interrupt the plans that we have for our lives here? Or do we long for his coming? Paul, when he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do we love the fact that Jesus is coming back? Do we long for it? There's a a crown of righteousness that will be awarded to us. Lastly, fifthly, we consider the heroes of the faith like Job. Many of you will have seen the memes online, be like Bob, or you're going to be like Job. Be like Job. Job endured incredible hardship. He lost it all. He lost his family, his possessions. Everything was stripped away from him. And yet it was quite clear that as that storm passed, where his foundations really lied, it was quite clear that his foundations were in God and his goodness. And even though his mates were coming up to him saying, well, I think it's because of this that you're going through this. I think maybe you've sinned and all this kind of stuff they were speculating about. He was trusting in God. Knowing God was better than knowing all the answers. We see from Job that God is not arbitrary or uncaring. We see that pain isn't always punishment. He trusted God in spite of not knowing. His foundation was secure. He was established in the goodness of God. So, there's those five things for us to take away. Ways in which we can consider it joy. We change our thinking. We consider what God might be doing through this. We resist comparison. We don't look to the other lanes and think, man, they've got it much better than me. We resist grumbling. We establish our hearts in the goodness of God. We long for Jesus' return. We think about heaven. Encourage you to dream about heaven. Dream about being with Jesus. And finally, we look at the Old Testament heroes. We see the heroes of the faith. We learn from them what it is 
to establish our foundations in God. So we're going to pray in a little while. We want, I, want to pray, I want many people to receive prayer. I think there will be many who are going through trials. And there will be prayer team. There will be lots of prayer team to my right, your left, where I want to encourage people to go and receive prayer for two things. Firstly, for deliverance from the situations that you're going through. It's okay to pray for that. It's good to pray for that. Suffering is not good. It's what God can bring about through suffering that is good. So we're going to pray for you, pray for healing, pray for deliverance from certain situations. But we're also going to pray for you that through that situation that God would mature you, that he would make you more like Christ. So that's what we're going to pray for in a moment. We're going to break, we're going to sing. So Joss, can you just get ready to come and lead us in a song of response to this? We're going to sing. And then after that, we're going to take the bread and the juice that's around the room. We're going to remember uh, Jesus' sacrifice for us that Jesus underwent the greatest trial of all, that he underwent the, the torture and the agony of crucifixion for you and for, for I, that we would know forgiveness and that we would not know separation from God. He was separated for a time from his father that he had been with for all eternity so that you and I would not ever have to know that, that we could as we place our faith in Jesus, that we could come into a relationship with God that would never be broken, that we would be able to walk with him throughout the rest of our lives. So we know a saviour who has been through the biggest trial of all. And we're just going to praise him together. Should we stand together? I just want to pray for us. We've got a good amount of time left just to respond to this. Father, I just want to ask for my self and for my brothers and sisters here who are enduring trials right now. I pray, Father, that we would be established in your goodness and your grace and your mercy. I pray, Father God, that we would right now uh, kick lies out of our mind that say that you're somehow punishing us or that somehow you're abandoning us because your truth, the truth in your word says that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, you have poured out your wrath upon your son. We're not being punished when we go through trials. I want to just say now, those lies need to be broken now in the name of Jesus. And we choose to believe, God, that you have good things for us. We choose to believe that you, even through trials, are causing us to become more like Jesus. And we want to be men and women who respond to you in that, that we will embrace that you are maturing us, that you are changing us. I pray that right around the room now that there will be a trust placed in you. As we're going to sing in a moment, we want to lean on you. We want to lean on our Father. We don't want to lean on other things that are flimsy. We don't want to go there. We don't want to go to other things that we see as our refuge. We want to go to our Father. If that's you right now and you know, I go to other things. I go to things that I know I shouldn't be looking at. I go to excessive food or drink whenever troubled times come. There's going to be an opportunity as well for you to receive prayer. But right now where you are, why don't you say to God, I trust in you. It's you that I lean upon. Just say that under your breath. Say it out loud if you want to. Say, God, it's you that I trust in. It's you the one that I am living for. We throw ourselves onto you, Father. We trust in you. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but 
please do not edit the content in any way.